This is KPFT Houston, 90.1 FM and FM HD1. From New York, this is Democracy Now! We are Israel's closest partner. The suffering in Gaza now becomes part of our story. It becomes part of our responsibility. Over 100 Palestinians are killed and 760 wounded after Israeli troops opened fire on a large crowd of people waiting for food aid in Gaza. We'll speak with Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, one of the first senators to call for a ceasefire. He also traveled to the Rafah border crossing, where only a trickle of humanitarian aid is being allowed into Gaza. We'll also talk with him about his new book, Filibustered, How to Fix the Broken Senate and Save America. Then we'll be joined by the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. He says Israel's intentionally starving Palestinians and should be held accountable for war crimes. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Authorities in Gaza say Israeli forces have committed a massacre in Gaza City, killing at least 104 Palestinians as they waited for food aid. Gaza's health ministry says over 760 people were wounded in what Hamas called an unprecedented war crime. According to eyewitnesses, Israeli forces opened fire on the crowd that had gathered around humanitarian aid trucks. The death toll is expected to rise as hospitals in Gaza City are struggling to treat the wounded. Dr. Jadala al-Shafai of al-Shifa Hospital spoke to Al Jazeera shortly after the attack. Since the early hours of the morning, the hospital has been flooded with dozens of dead bodies and hundreds of injured. The majority of the victims suffered gunshot wounds and shrapnel in the head and upper parts of their bodies. They were hit by direct artillery shelling, drone missiles and gunfire. All our operation rooms are full and all medical staff have been deployed. Above all, we ran out of medical supplies and fuel necessary to operate the hospital. We hope we will be able to provide any life-saving procedures to those victims. All victims are in critical condition. They're lying on the floor. We stand helpless amid the sharp shortage of supplies and staff. This comes as Palestinian officials say the death toll in Gaza since October 7th has topped 30,000. The staggering milestone, which does not account for thousands still missing or trapped under rubble, represents one out of every 75 people in Gaza. The U.N. says over half a million people in Gaza are on the cusp of starvation. The Gaza Health Ministry reports six children recently died from dehydration and malnutrition. Seven other children are in critical condition. After headlines, we'll speak with Oregon's Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley. He recently visited the Egyptian side of the Rafa border crossing. Here in New York, activists are observing a 24-hour vigil in front of City Hall. Participants are reading the names of the 30,000 Palestinians killed since October 7th. A number of city council members have appeared at the vigil since it kicked off Wednesday amidst an effort to pass a ceasefire resolution in New York City. Audrey Sasson, director of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, spoke yesterday. You do not have to be Arab, Muslim, Palestinian, or in my case, in the case of our members, Jews who say no, to speak out against an unfolding genocide. That's right. You simply need to be a human being who is paying attention. In Missouri, a Girl Scout troop has split from the organization after the group made legal threats against the girls for running a fundraiser benefiting Palestinian children. Girl Scout mother Nawal Abu Hamda said that instead of selling cookies this year, her 10-year-old daughter and sister troop members decided to make and sell bracelets with beads in the colors of the Palestinian flag, spelling out Gaza and Palestine.
The Girl Scouts of Eastern Missouri deemed the move political, banning them from continuing their fundraiser for the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. In response, the girls decided to part ways with the Girl Scouts organization. They're continuing their fundraiser, which has raised over $10,000 so far. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell announced he's stepping down as Senate's Republican leader in November in a move that's expected to strengthen Donald Trump's control of the Republican Party. The 82-year-old McConnell has served 17 years as Republican leader, the longest term in Senate history. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of Senator McConnell said he plans to finish his term as senator. During his leadership, Mitch McConnell successfully blocked voting on Democratic bills from gun control to election integrity, while ramming through Republican priorities, including Trump's $2 trillion tax cuts for corporations and the wealthiest Americans. Mitch McConnell helped Trump stack federal courts with far-right judges. He also reversed the 60-vote threshold for confirming Supreme Court justices, allowing Trump to install three right-wing ideologues on the bench a few years after stonewalling President Obama's Supreme Court justice pick. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich said of McConnell, quote, few people have done more to undermine our democratic institutions and the rule of law than Mitch McConnell, Reich said. The Supreme Court's announced it'll decide whether former President Donald Trump has presidential immunity and cannot be prosecuted for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. Oral arguments will be held during the week of April 22nd. Trump's claimed he should have total immunity from prosecution. The court's decision is seen as a major victory for Trump, as it'll likely further delay his federal election subversion trial until possibly after the November election. Meanwhile, a judge in Illinois has ruled Trump should be removed from the state's March 19th primary ballot for violating the insurrectionist clause of the 14th Amendment. The judge stayed her ruling until Friday, giving Trump a chance to appeal. Colorado and Maine have also ruled Trump to be ineligible. The Supreme Court heard arguments in the Colorado case three weeks ago, but hasn't issued a decision yet. In other Trump news, the New York Times has revealed the former president has paid out nearly $400,000 to cover legal expenses from his failed lawsuit against the newspaper. Trump sued the Times after it revealed his confidential tax record showed he paid very little in federal income tax. This all comes as Trump and President Biden are both making separate trips today to the U.S.-Mexico border. Biden is headed to Brownsville, Texas, while Trump is going to Eagle Pass, Texas, which has been the center of a standoff between the state of Texas and the federal government. In other election news, Marianne Williamson has unsuspended her presidential campaign after she received about 3 percent of the vote in Michigan's Democratic primary against Biden. Williamson's the only Democratic candidate to support a ceasefire in Gaza. In other Supreme Court news, justices appear divided along ideological lines as they considered Wednesday whether the Trump administration overreached its authority when it imposed a ban on bump stocks in 2018. Bump stocks can turn semi-automatic rifles into fully automatic machine guns and were used in the 2017 Las Vegas mass shooting, which killed 60 people and injured hundreds. A decision is expected in the summer. Congressional leaders announced a deal Wednesday to briefly extend government funding, avoiding a partial shutdown. The deal, which both the Senate and House must vote on before a Friday deadline, would fund six federal agencies through March 8th and another six through March 22nd. In the Texas panhandle, the massive Smokehouse Creek fire has now burned nearly 900,000 acres of land, making it the second largest wildfire in Texas history. The fire is now larger than the state of Rhode Island. At least one person and thousands of cattle have died in the blaze, which was sparked by record heat. Residents say the fire quickly swept through whole neighborhoods. It came up very fast. I saw the neighbor's house starting to burn, and I called 911, and the fire trucks got here, but it was, it just started really fast. The flames were going everywhere. And by the time we got back, well, there was nothing left. We basically have lost everything. This is the only pair of pants I've got. And 
the shirt. That's it. Four other large fires are also burning in Texas. In other news from Texas, prison officials executed 50-year-old Dallas native Ivan Abner Cantu on Wednesday, despite major doubts over his conviction and a high-profile campaign to save him. A key witness recanted their testimony in the 2000 double homicide, which killed Cantu's cousin and his cousin's fiance, and over which Cantu had always maintained his innocence. Among those who called for a stay in Cantu's execution were jurors from his trial, Democratic Congress members, celebrities, and Catholic activists. Texas medical officials injected Cantu with pentobarbital at 6.26 p.m. He died 21 minutes later. In other execution news, Idaho prison officials had to call off the execution Wednesday of Thomas Eugene Creech after failing to establish IV lines. The all-volunteer medical team attempted to find a viable vein for the lethal injection for nearly an hour, trying eight different sites on his body. The execution was scheduled to be Idaho's first in 12 years. In Guinea. Trade unions have suspended their nationwide strike after union leader Seku Jamal Pendesa was released from prison Wednesday. The strike had gripped the West African nation since it started earlier this week. Two young protesters were killed Monday after clashes with police. The labor-led protests came after Guinea's military, which overthrew President Alpha Conde in a 2021 coup, unexpectedly dissolved the transitional government that had been in place since 2022. Unions accused leaders of cracking down on dissent and censoring the Alpha Conde hit problems with the press, but what junta leader Mamadi Dumbaya has done today is worse, because Dumbaya even went as far as to cut off the internet in Guinea for more than a month. Alpha Conde never did that. In Nigeria, government workers and other sectors have launched a new nationwide strike amidst growing protests over the soaring cost of living and inflation. Labor leaders say President Bola Tinubu is failing to deliver on campaign promises of wage increases and financial help for the poorest households. The International Criminal Court has awarded victims of Uganda's Lord's Resistance Army, Commander Dominique Ongwen, more than $56 million in compensation. Although the sum is a record for the ICC, it amounts to a symbolic $812 for the more than 50,000 eligible survivors. The tribunal's trust fund for victims is expected to pay out the money. Survivors reacted to the verdict Wednesday. Me personally, I am not. Uh, I'm not happy. The, the the order it's unfair because if they are paying us 750, that's around three million Ugandan money. That is really little money. Like for example, for me, I was shot. My hand, I've lost my hand. I can't do any heavy work. So that money can't even buy me land. It can't even reparate what I lost in my life. Dominic Nguyen, once a child soldier himself, eventually became one of the LRA's top commanders. He was sentenced in 2021 to 25 years on 60 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity, including rape, murder and child abduction. Back in the United States, Republicans blocked a bill that would create federal protections for in vitro fertilization. Senator Tammy Duckworth, who had both her daughters using IVF, brought the measure to the floor in the wake of Alabama's Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos are children. Duckworth sought to pass the bill under unanimous consent, but Republican Cindy Hyde-Smith blocked it, citing vast overreach. Meanwhile, Alabama Republicans have advanced several bills to protect IVF in the state, which could pass as early as next week. And the Justice Department has launched its investigation into Boeing after a door blew off an Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9 mid-flight last month. This comes as the Federal Aviation Administration gave the company a 90-day deadline for presenting a safety plan that meets current standards for new planes. A recent report by the FAA found Boeing's safety culture to be inadequate and confusing. Last week, Boeing announced it was replacing the head of its 737 MAX program. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, over 100 Palestinians are killed and 760 wounded after Israeli troops open fire on a large crowd of people waiting for food aid in Gaza. And the death toll overall in Gaza since October 7th has surpassed 30,000. We'll speak with Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley, one of the first senators to call for a ceasefire. Back in a minute. 
This is KPFT Program Coordinator Marlo Blue. We are in the final day of our Winter Thankathon. I hope that you've already made your donation, but if you haven't, and if programs like Democracy Now! are important to you, please make your sustainer pledge now. 713-526-5738, extension 1, or securely online at kpft.org. Support programs that are important to you. Give today to KPFT. We all love Amy. We love her in our lives. Show it. 713-526-5738. If you have not already given during this pledgeathon, please make that donation now. Shorten these marathons and we can do it if if we get more sustainers. 713-526-5738 or securely online at kpft.org. Thank you. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Scores of Palestinians were killed and 760 injured early Thursday after Israeli troops opened fire on a large crowd waiting for deliveries of food in Gaza City. At the time of this broadcast, the death toll stands at 104, with the number expected to rise, according to the health ministry in Gaza, which said the attack, quote, constituted a new phase in the genocide. Hundreds of Palestinians had gathered on a major street where aid trucks carrying flour were due to arrive when Israeli forces opened fire from tanks and drones. The wounded have been taken to four hospitals in the area, all of which are largely non-functioning with no electricity or medical supplies. The death toll in Gaza has now crossed 30,000, according to the health ministry, with thousands more missing and presumed dead. Over 70,000 have been wounded. Among the worst affected areas in Gaza is the north, where aid has barely been delivered in months. One official with the World Health Organization told Reuters that any aid deliveries that do come through are mobbed by desperate people who are visibly starving with sunken eyes. On Wednesday, top UN officials told the Security Council over half a million people in Gaza are on the cusp of starvation, while virtually the entire population of 2.3 million people is in desperate need of food. Today, we're joined by Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon. In November, he became only the second senator to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. In January, Senator Merkley traveled to the Rafah border crossing in Egypt to witness the system of humanitarian aid deliveries. Senator Merkley is co-author of the new book, Filibustered, How to Fix the Broken Senate and Save America. Before we speak to the senator, let's turn to a clip of his address on the Senate floor in early February about the humanitarian truck inspections at the Rafah border crossing. Israel has set up a very complicated system to inspect the trucks before. And they had such an inspection system before October 7th, and they were able to inspect and allow 500 trucks a day to enter. But they've set up a convoluted system now that Senator Van Hollen and I witnessed at Rafah Crossing, where truck drivers, after loading up their supplies, often wait up to a week to get permission to pass into Gaza. A week. Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon joins us now from Washington, D.C. Senator, welcome to Democracy Now! Well, thank you so much. Very good to be with you. You are the second senator to call for a ceasefire. This... Um, after last week, though you called for it before, the U.S. once again um, vetoed a ceasefire resolution at the United Nations. We just had reports today that you heard about Israeli troops opening fire through tanks, guns, um, drones on people desperate for aid, killing more than 100, perhaps wounding more than 700. Can you talk about the situation right now and what you feel needs to happen? Well, the situation is a cascade of catastrophes. Uh, it is lack of food. It's lack of clean water. It's lack of shelter. It's lack of power. It's lack of communications, all while bombs and artillery shells keep falling. 
the seasoned humanitarian aid workers that I met with at Rafah Gate and in Egypt and in Jordan said they had been in the worst conflict zones in the world, places like the front line of Ukraine, places like, like Yemen and Somalia, and that nothing compares to the combination of tragedies that are simultaneously occurring in, in Gaza. The humanitarian situation uh, is horrific. Senator Merkley, despite what you say, of course, there are still only five senators who are calling for a ceasefire. What's your message to them? My message is that we have to look with open eyes because because that's what we do with every humanitarian situation around the world, whether it's in Burma, whether it's with people being enslaved in, in China or the way China's treating Tibetans. Uh, in this case, it happens to be occurring in the context of our work with an, with an ally, with, with Israel. But that means we can't just look away and pretend it's not, not happening. We have to recognize we, the United States, are so closely tied, more closely tied than any situation in the world because of our military aid to Israel, our resupply of bombs and artillery shells during the, the war, our, our very close consultation and intelligence sharing for all these reasons. It's the United States that has leverage to address this situation, and the world expects us to take the lead and to act in a much more bold and aggressive way than we have been doing. And what about the, 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 your position on military aid, quite apart from a ceasefire? Have there been calls for the suspension of military aid, given the situation on the ground? Yes, I voted against the emergency supplemental because it included additional offensive aid as opposed to, well, it includes defensive as well, which I can I can support. But the idea that we're voting to resupply these types of arms that have been used in indiscriminate bombing by Israel in Gaza, contributing and creating to uh, this humanitarian debacle, uh, I I had to oppose that, and uh, it's it, it's complicated uh, because it's tied in the same bill with aid to Ukraine, which I and others strongly support. But we need to have a an, a a Senate where we can actually put up amendments, be able to debate pieces of the legislation, which we were unable to do. Senator Merkley, the Michigan primary just happened. Um, uh, we see there this uncontested vote for every six people who voted for Biden, for every six Democrats, one person voted for uncontested. Over 100,000 people in Michigan, the battleground state, uh, meaning uncommitted. Um, and this was clearly a vote for a ceasefire and for President Biden to change his position uh, on embracing Israel, on providing weapons for Israel, on perhaps saying that he's being harsh behind the scenes, but continuing to embrace Israel uh, publicly um, and when it comes to issues like military aid. Do you think that President Biden is... Uh, perhaps putting his own reelection in jeopardy for the stance he's taken on Israel, whether it's the Arab American community in this country responding, the African American community, a thousand pastors just wrote him a letter, youth vote in this country. And have you had conversations with him? Well, I have not had conversations directly with President Biden, but I have with many of his advisors. And the situation is such they are conscious of certainly how this is reverberating in a political context. But certainly Palestinian Americans are profoundly disturbed. It's hard to find any Palestinian American who has not lost members of their extended family in Gaza or is deeply disturbed uh, through their, their friends and extended associations of the impact. And we have a population that has thought about the issues of social justice in focused ways over the last few years, in the Me Too movement, in the Black Lives Matter movement. And what they are seeing is an, a connection, identification with folks in, in, in Palestine that are in, uh, in Gaza who are the weaker party in this and who are civilians who are dying at, 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 in through this type of warfare and being injured on a massive scale. And it's 
profoundly disturbing. It should be profoundly disturbing to every American, but it is certainly affecting how younger folks who have grown up with a, with a social consciousness are seeing this and, and pondering the election to come. It is a significant uh, electoral issue. Senator Merkley, just to go back to your uh, visit to Rafa last month, if you could explain what exactly the situation is uh, on the, the crossing, along the crossing, and why so many trucks are being turned away. Uh, there are lines and lines of them on the Egyptian side of the border. And when you were there, you said that in a warehouse in Rafa, filled with material, you saw this warehouse that had been rejected in inspection, the the warehouse included things like oxygen cylinders, gas power generators, tents and medical kits used in delivering babies. What explanations been given for why these uh, things are being turned away? Well, Israel has had great reluctance about providing aid into Gaza, and yet they control all the entry points into Gaza, so they are the critical factor. And so they set up a system that's that's full of uh, challenges. So truck drivers have to wait for permission to go to the inspection location, which is in Israel. So they drive then from, they may be waiting quite a while in Egypt, waiting for permission to do that, get to that inspection point, and they'll may be told, well, there is an item on your truck that we can't allow. For example, one issue we heard about was scalpels in birthing kits. Well, they have a sharp edge, so this is being rejected. Or perhaps it's an oxygen tank for a hospital, but that metal could be used as a missile launcher. Or uh, this is uh, a power generator needed also for a hospital, but it could be used uh, by Hamas to put air into a tunnel. So these things get rejected even after they have often been cleared in advance. And if a single item is rejected off the truck, the entire truck is rejected. And so this is why the process is so complicated and, and, and difficult. Uh, partly it's rooted in an authentic desire to avoid dual use items that will help Hamas. And partly it's rooted in a reluctance to provide aid directly from Israel into Gaza. And yet the U.S. has depended upon that as a way to provide humanitarian aid. And it's been so grossly inadequate. So every single day we see the, the growing collapse of the medical system. We see women who are having C-sections without anesthesia. We see children having their, 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 their limbs amputated without anesthesia. We see basic supplies of, of medicine for people who are suffering from high blood pressure or they're suffering from uh, di diabetic uh, circumstances or they have infections and they don't have antibiotics. Uh, this is this is unacceptable. It's why I've been calling for the U.S. to bypass Israel and do direct deliveries of aid. We have the ability to get airlift of every medicine needed to those remaining few hospitals that are functioning. We have the ability to get aid onshore with our huge sea lift and airlift uh, capability and then have it distributed by humanitarian organizations. We are complicit now in this starvation and humanitarian catastrophe uh, because of our close relationship. And it, this has to end. We have to act directly. Would you call it a genocide, Senator Merkley? I have not used the word uh, genocide. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an international humanitarian uh, or a legal organization. But let's just describe that these circumstances being deliberately inflicted upon the people and the, and the displacement have many of the characteristics of the worst situations around the world that we have condemned previously. I want to ask you about the breaking news yesterday about Senator McConnell stepping down as the Republican leader of the Senate, a position he has held longer than any senator in history. Um, he's going to step down next November in a move that's expected to strengthen Trump's control of the Republican Party, serve 17 years as Republican leader. Um, I wanted to talk, ab uh, talk about his record. Uh, he said he plans to finish as senator. During his leadership, McConnell successfully blocked voting on Democratic bills from gun control to election integrity, ramming through Republican priorities, including Trump's $2 trillion tax cuts for corporations and the wealthiest Americans, helped stack 
Um, Trump stacked federal courts with far-right judges, reversed the 60-vote threshold for confirming Supreme Court justices, allowing Trump to install three right-wing justices on the bench a few years after stonewalling President Obama's Supreme Court justice pick, Merrick Garland. It's absolutely amazing what happened, saying when um, Scalia died. Um, I want to play a clip of McConnell himself talking about why Merrick Garland uh, would not be able to have a hearing before the election the following November. It's been more than 80 years, 80 years, since a Supreme Court vacancy arose and was filled in a presidential election year. And that, Mr. President, was when the Senate majority and the president were from the same political party. The same political party, it's been 80, 80 years. Since we have divided government today, it means we have to look back almost 130 years to the last time a nominee was confirmed in similar circumstances. That's back when politicians like Mugwumps were debating policies like free silver. And a guy named Grover ran the country. Think about that. As senators, it leaves us with a choice. Will we allow the people to continue deciding who will nominate the next justice? Or will we empower a lame duck president to make that decision on his way out the door instead? So that was 2016. Meanwhile, September 2020, Senate Democrats slammed Senate Majority Leader McConnell for rushing to fill Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat so close in the November election, holding hearings on the nomination of the conservative federal judge Amy Coney Barrett. When early voting had already begun in some states, she was confirmed a week before Biden's election. Uh, Senator Merkley, your assessment of McConnell's tenure. Yes, back in the mid-1990s when Gingrich was shifting strategy on the House side, and that shift in strategy was to say, rather than cooperate with the majority to get some things into bills, we'll basically obstruct them as much as we can and then argue that their failures mean they should be replaced, and it proved to be an effective strategy. McConnell said, Gingrich gives obstruction a good name. But in the Senate, he had tools Gingrich could never have dreamed of. He had the nomination process, which every objection to closing debate means a, a nomination could take a, a week, so he could really slow things down. And then he had the 60-vote requirement for closing debate. And if you flip the math, it means that in the minority, with 41 votes, you can paralyze the Senate on policy bills. And he used that in an aggressive strategy, and he used it on nominations, and he really brought obstruction to be the, the premier tool of the minority, arguing the more you obstruct, the more you make the case for the majority to be replaced by the minority. I really thought when I first heard this, this was just so absurd, and the American people would see it and understand it and reject it and, and penalize the minority for using obstruction in this fashion. But I was wrong. It turned out to be an incredibly effective strategy because the American people hold the majority accountable. They're like, if that's if you've got a problem with getting things done, solve that problem. You are in charge. And so his legacy has been one of obstruction, uh, and it has been one in which he has used the most convenient argument of the moment in order to make power moves on behalf of the Republican Party to make the first time in U.S. history that the Senate didn't debate a nominee the very first time. I called it the stolen seat. And uh, when Obama nominated uh, near the end of his term and uh, and then proceed to change the rules for the, the Supreme Court and in exact contravention of the argument he'd made just just prior. So it was the argument of the moment. No consistency except the strategy of obstruction of Democrats and power moves for Republicans. And for the power moves, I'm sure much of the Republican Party appreciates him for the Supreme Court does, but it has done incredible damage to the institution of the Senate and incredible damage to the institution of the Supreme Court. And are you concerned that the person who replaces him will be even more extreme? Uh, word is it's going to be one of the three Johns who always stand behind him, Senators John Thune of South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas, and John Barrasso, perhaps the most MAGA um, of Wyoming. 
there's a lot of things to worry about, but some things are completely out of my control. So I'll just wait and see what happens. And that certainly is the case in the selection of the Republican leader. We're speaking with Democratic Senator Jeff Merkley, who's authored a new book with his chief of staff titled Filibustered, How to Fix the Broken Senate and Save America. This is Senator Merkley holding a filibuster-like session overnight back in 2017, speaking for more than 15 hours in protest of the Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch's nomination. And to confirm anyone but Merrick Garland to this seat confirms the Senate as the thief who took the seat for the first time in U.S. history and transported to another president in an effort to pack the court. So, Senator Merkley, if you could talk about your book just out last month. Yes. Well, that situation that that night, uh, what I knew was coming was that at the very moment uh, that that the minority leader, uh, majority leader McConnell, uh, proceeded to uh, put the nomination on the floor for Gorsuch. He also filed to close debate. And so there wasn't um, a long obstruction uh, of any kind. There was zero obstruction. But he wanted to make sure he did this as quickly as possible, that is to install Gorsuch, uh, in order to have the public pay as little attention as possible. Uh, he knew it was controversial. He wanted to get it over with, and so he minimized the debate in a fashion we've never seen before, and also did that to change the rules from a supermajority to close debate to a simple majority. Democrats had changed the rules after massive obstruction by McConnell on lower courts, but we'd said to the Supreme Court has to retain the integrity and legitimacy necessary to play its role in the balance of powers and the separation of powers in our in our government, and that therefore we should leave that as a supermajority requirement. Uh, McConnell, uh, in this power move, said, well, you know what? We're going to get those judges in no matter how extreme they are, no matter how flawed they are, uh, because they are going to rule uh, in fashion that will is like legislating for the far right. And that's what we have now, a deeply damaged court operating as really a uh, uh, legislature uh, for the far right. So, Senator, I know you have to go, but we want to ask about that subtitle, which is key, how to fix the broken Senate and save America. Yes. Well, uh, right now we are completely paralyzed by the cloture motion designed to be used once a decade. It's used once or twice a day and, and it takes a, a, a week. It's just uh, completely paralyzed the place. We have, instead of uh, a voice for the minority and an incentive to compromise, we have a veto by the minority without an incentive to compromise. And that means the cycle of, of uh, government is broken. The American people believe that government is supposed to be you elect people, and if you get a majority, then they can they can implement that vision. And but if you can't implement that vision because there's a minority veto, then that just produces cynicism and frustration, which is exactly what we see today. The founders had seen this with the Confederation Congress, which required a supermajority. They said, whatever you do, never replicate this. This will be a formula for tedious uh, situations and, and contemptible compromises of the common good. But we have done exactly what the founders said not to do, flip democracy on the head, given the minority the power to choose the, the, the path, and broken the cycle in which government can function. That is why we have to reform the filibuster, go from this current 41 vote paralysis to a talking filibuster where there's an incentive for compromise and where the debate is held before the American people and there's an eventual pathway to get to a majority vote. Senator Jeff Merkley, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Co-author of the new book, Filibustered, How to Fix the Broken Senate and Save America. Senator Merkley traveled to the Rafa crossing back in January. Now in November has become only the second senator to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. When we come back, we're going to speak to one of his constituents. That's right. We're going to speak to another Oregonian who's teaching at the University of Oregon in Eugene. He's a U.N. special rapporteur on the right to food. Food, Michael Fahri. Stay with us. Tell me another story. You're listening. 
You're listening to Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, original national and international reporting based in New York City and brought to you every morning here on KPFT 90.1 FM. KPFT is programmed by your neighbors, folks who live down the street from you. If you want to keep programming on the air that matters to you, then give to kpft.org. Become a sustaining member today at the $120 level and above, and you'll receive our Carolina combo of Lola Savannah coffee and the new Caroline Street mug over and above what you choose from our premiums and tickets available. And you'll be entered in the drawing for the last pair of tickets to the KPFT birthday party with Lyle Lovett and Jesse Dayton. Coming up after Democracy Now!, it's You Talk with Steve Hunter, followed by Amplified Houston and the Great Wide Open with Clint Broussard. Help keep KPFT local. Your donation at 713-526-5738 makes it possible. Please call now. Let me thank you next. That number is 713-526-5738 or use the website kpft.org. Thank you. And now let's rejoin Democracy Now! already in progress. Spreading. In the latest attack earlier today, over 100 Palestinians were killed and more than 700 wounded in Gaza City when they came under fire from Israeli tanks and drones. Over half a million people in Gaza are on the cusp of starvation, while virtually the entire population of 2.3 million people is in desperate need of food as a result of the continued Israeli bombardment, ground attacks and ongoing siege. According to the United Nations, the amount of aid reaching the Palestinian territory dropped by 50% in February compared to the previous month. This is Ramesh Rajasingham, Coordination Director of the UN's Humanitarian Office, speaking at the Security Council on Wednesday. In December, it was projected that the entire population of 2.2 million people in Gaza would face high levels of acute food insecurity by February 2024. The highest share of people facing this level of food insecurity ever recorded worldwide. And here we are at the end of February with at least 576,000 people in Gaza, one quarter of the population, one step away from famine. The UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, Michael Fahri says Israel's intentionally starving Palestinians and should be held accountable for war crimes. Michael Fakhri joins us now from Eugene, Oregon. He's a professor of law at the University of Oregon. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Michael Fakhri. Why don't you lay out what you understand is happening and what is international law around the right to food? Yes, thank you, Amy. Every single person in Gaza is hungry right now. A quarter of the population, so that's a, a half a million people are starving, and famine is imminent. We've never seen an entire population, 2.2 million people, made to go hungry this quickly and this completely. And people's health is rapidly declining. What's really concerning now is we're starting to hear reports of children dying from dehydration malnutrition, and starvation. We've never seen children pushed into malnutrition so quickly. Um, in the almost five months of war, there have been more children, more journalists, more medical personnel, more, uh, more UN staff killed, more than anywhere else in the world in any conflict. In early October, um, when the, this war began, uh, myself, amongst other independent UN human rights experts, immediately called for a warning of a risk of genocide, asking that there be an immediate ceasefire to prevent genocide. Unfortunately, what's happened is it, um, the war has gotten worse. Israel's uh, attacks against civilians has continued and expanded. And I think it's safe to say this is a genocide. And now we're in the situation where we're seeing uh, starvation and we're seeing the denial of humanitarian aid and the destruction of the food system itself in Gaza. And, and Michael, if you could respond to the news from earlier today, uh, authorities in Gaza saying Israeli forces committed a massacre in Gaza City, killing at least 104 Palestinians as they waited for food aid. Gaza's health ministry says over 760 people were wounded in what Hamas called an unprecedented war crime. 
According to eyewitnesses, Israeli forces opened fire on the crowd who'd gathered around humanitarian aid trucks. So if you could uh, respond to that and, you know, what that means in terms of the very little food aid getting in uh, and people trying to get it, and, and then this is what happens. Yes, this isn't... so. Unfortunately, this isn't the first time people have been shot, out, shot at by Israeli forces while trying to get access to aid. So this most recent story is, has been the most tragic in, in terms of the number of dead and the number of wounded. But there have been repeated reports of Israeli uh, forces shooting at Palestinian civilians who are waiting to receive aid. Um, we've also heard reports of Isra uh, Israel bombarding convoys of aid trucks even after those routes are coordinated with Israeli forces. So Israeli forces know exactly where those convoys are, and nevertheless, they are uh, 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 shooting at them. Uh, moreover, there's been planned convoys that have been attempted to be sent to northern Gaza, and the last convoy that was sent, uh, that Israel allowed to reach northern Gaza, was January 23rd. So not only is Israel shooting at people getting aid, uh, bombarding trucks um, uh, en route. They're denying uh, uh, convoys from reaching the north, and they're making it very difficult for uh, trucks to cross the borders, as we heard from Senator Merkley, whether it's through Rafah crossing the border with Egypt, or where most aid is coming through is the Karam Shalom crossing, which um, uh, uh, is through uh, Israel. So, Michael Fakhry, you're really explaining a dire situation. I mean, um, looking on film at people in Gaza, the sunken eyes, how skinny their bodies are. We have reports. Uh, Al Jazeera was just doing a report from uh, one of the hospitals in northern Gaza. Um, it was Kamal Adwan Hospital, where they said infants uh, are in the hospital. They no longer have parents. Usually at the hospital, there's a a can of milk for every infant. Here, there isn't a can for the entire ward. What does it mean to be the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the right to food? What kind of power do you have? What kind of reports do you do? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm running out of words to be able to describe the horror of what's happening and how vile the actions have been by Israel against the Palestinian civilians. My job is to be—I'm an independent expert. I'm given authority by the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. This is a volunteer position. My job is to be the eyes, ears, and sometimes good conscience for the UN system on all matters regarding hunger, malnutrition— and famine from a human rights perspective. So what I do is I present reports to the Human Rights Council and to the General Assembly. I decide what's on the agenda when I present to them. I decide what is the right to food agenda when presenting to the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly. Um, so my most recent report when I go to the, General, uh, to the Human Rights Council next week will be on the role of small-scale fishers. Um, and uh, what I will be doing now between now and then uh, the General Assembly in October is my next report will be on starvation with an emphasis on Gaza, because unfortunately, we're seeing a rise in conflict all over the world. Conflict is the main source of hunger uh, um, in the world. And also for that report to create a record of what's going on in Gaza, because we're seeing starvation we're, and we're at the brink of famine. And what's uh, the thing to remember about starvation and famine, it's always, always human-made. It's always the result of political choices. Never has there been um, a famine in modern history that was not because people with power made very specific choices and chose and decided to punish civilians. And what we're seeing in Gaza is no different than that historical record. Michael Fakhri, could you talk about the uh, International Court of Justice uh, ordering uh, provisional measures and what's come of that? To what extent did Israel comply with those provisional measures? Yeah, on, on January uh, 26th, the International Court of Justice stated in its provisional measures, um, and here I'm going to quote verbatim, that the state of Israel must take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. What the court also did is it considered the catastrophic 
humanitarian situation, this is, these are their words, in the Gaza Strip is, quote, at a serious risk of deteriorating. That's the International Court of Justice uh, in late January. What happened instead, Israel did not comply with the court. In fact, it tried to undermine the court's authority. And what they did, in fact, is they've been restricting and denying the delivery of humanitarian aid to people in Gaza. Um, and around that same time in late January, uh, Israel denied there was even a humanitarian crisis or starvation. And so what we saw instead of compliance with the International Court of Justice is a reduction of humanitarian aid by 50%. Um, and so to put it in perspective, before the war began, approximately 500 trucks uh, used to enter Gaza a day. Now, if we're lucky, the average is about 100, but it's, uh, that's, that's you know, an average amount. The other thing to remember, even before all of this happened, is Israel had a lot of control over the entry of food into Gaza through a 17-year blockade. Because the question we have to ask, how was Israel able to make 2.2 million people go so hungry so quickly and completely? They were already keeping people on the brink of hunger through the 17-year blockade, making it very difficult for fishers to access the sea. And 50% of people in Gaza before the war were already food insecure. 80% uh, relied on humanitarian aid. So it's, it's so clear that not only is Israel not complying with the International Court of Justice, but I would add now that Israel is using humanitarian aid as a bargaining chip. So not only is it breaching international law and the uh, order of the International Court of Justice, it's clear now because what we saw on Tuesday, this is February 27th, this Tuesday, Israel and Hamas began negotiating for a potential 40-day truce. And it's important to note what has Israel offered in, in, in the negotiations. They've offered humanitarian relief to Palestinians in Gaza. So what Israel is offering for they want concessions from Hamas, they're offering things like a commitment to bring in 500 trucks per day of humanitarian aid. Israel is potentially committing to providing 200,000 tents and 60,000 caravans, and they're uh, offering to rehabilitate hospitals and bakeries um, and to allow for the necessary equipment uh, to enter. This is the bare minimum. What they're offering as a political negotiation is the basic bare minimum as a legal obligation um, in terms of international humanitarian law, as a legal obligation to comply with the International Court of Justice, as a legal obligation to meet uh, human rights law. But again, this is the bare minimum. And they've been withholding this. They've been withholding this. And now that we see the negotiations for a truce, we see how Israel is using it as a bargaining chip to offer something as if it's a political choice and not a legal, and I would add, a moral obligation. Is Israel committing a war crime, Michael Fakhri? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, they are committing war crimes. But let me add a war crime. What's interesting about war crimes is we can only hold individuals accountable for war crimes. Um, this is something, I think, more existential. This is why we are saying, uh, we being the uh, uh, dozens of independent UN human rights experts, are saying this is genocide. This is why the International Court of Justice is saying there's a plausible case for genocide from their perspective. What we mean by saying this is genocide means that Palestinian people, the people, are being targeted simply because they are Palestinian simply because of who they are. This is what makes it genocide. What's important about framing it genocide is, of course, the remedy that, uh, that is available. Genocide means the state of Israel itself is culpable. That, because if, to go back to starvation, this is a systemic denial of humanitarian aid. This is a political choice to use the denial of humanitarian aid and starving of people as a political bargaining chip. This means that the entire state of Israel is culpable, but that also means that the remedy is not just throw this individual or that individual in jail, maybe in some a few years in the future. What the remedy is for genocide is uh, fully recognizing the right of the Palestinian people uh, to, for self-determination. This is why it's important to understand this as a genocide.
Let's move from Gaza to the West Bank. Um, can you talk about the attacks on farmers on the West Bank? What is happening on the ground? Who is responsible, Michael Fakhri? Yeah, so what's also interesting is that uh, when, the, uh, when this uh, particular war started in Gaza, immediately we saw an escalation of violence by uh, Israeli settlers against Palestinians and specifically against Palestinian uh, farmers. And we saw increased violence by Israeli forces against Palestinians in the West Bank. And so what's happened now is that um, the, the harvest season for olives has passed and, and farmers were not able to harvest olives. This has several implications. So there's a record number of violence we're seeing in the West Bank um, more than ever in, in, in recent times. And attacking the olive trees and olive harvest is not just about uh, olives, which are important for nutrition and for food um, and for uh, making sure that the land remains um, fruitful in the future, the olive tree is central to Palestinian identity. It reflects and is a, a, a core aspect of the Palestinian people's relationship to the land, to traditions, to their ancestors, and to the future. And so to attack and, and uh, undermine and eliminate some um, olive trees is, again, attack against the Palestinian people at their core. So what we're seeing, again, this is why we're, there we're so concerned that it's not, this is not just about a war in Gaza. This is, an, this is escalated violence against Palestinian people. And you, and you can track this when you follow food, when you follow the relation, uh, agriculture, when you look at fishers in Gaza. Um, and if I might turn also to how uh, the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, has been uh, threatened by the lack of funding. So because of unfounded claims by Israel, claiming that at first they said 12, and now the, the number is down to nine employees out of 30,000 employees, major donors to UNRWA have decided to end funding. This includes the United States, Germany, Canada, Japan, amongst many others. This punishes all Palestinian refugees across the board, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, but also in Lebanon, in Syria, and Jordan. So time and time again, what we are seeing is this increased rate of violence against all Palestinian people simply because of who they are. Michael Fakhri, let's just end with the global hunger crisis, which the World Food Program has noted is of unprecedented proportions. In just two years, the number of people facing or at risk of acute food insecurity increased from 135 million before the pandemic to 345 million now. Yes. So um, before the pandemic, we were already seeing a rise in the rates of hunger and malnutrition. This started in 2015. When the pandemic started in 2020, it immediately triggered um, a, a hunger crisis in the whole world. And so rich countries, poor countries alike, all of a sudden there was a spike in, in hunger. Now, uh, when the pandemic then formally ended, what happened is the hunger crisis actually got worse. The reason is because there were temporary measures and social programs that were put in place during the pandemic to deal with a health crisis. This is things like universal school meals for uh, children, sometimes throughout the whole year, not just the academic year, um, direct cash payments to people supporting uh, local uh, food markets, local farmers markets. These programs are put in place uh, as temporary measures to deal with the pandemic and the food crisis of the pandemic. We have 30 and, seconds, Michael. So what needs to be done is to turn those temporary programs into permanent programs. Otherwise, this global food crisis is only going to get worse. Michael Fakhri is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food and a professor of law at the University of Oregon. That does it for today's program. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Dina Guzder, Sharif Abdelkadus, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Charina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tay Maria Studio, 
Robbie Karen, Hani Massoud, and Hannah Elias. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, Dennis McCormick, Matt Ely, Anna Ozbeck, Emily Anderson, Buffy St. Marie Hernandez. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh for Democracy Now! And good morning, KPFT listeners. That was Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. And I am Howard Reynolds. We're going to uh, talk about KPFT. Raises some funds right before we get to you talk while steve is getting ready to do you talk 